Before we get started this week, I'm here to put you all at ease because I'm sure you've been wondering how you wash a weighted blanket from last episode. And the answer is, thanks to Shannon for emailing this, you don't wash it, you put a duvet cover over it and then you don't have to wash it. Brilliant idea, don't know how we didn't think of that, but appreciate you reaching out. Also, thank you to the patrons of this podcast. You could join my Patreon for as little as $1 a month, which allows you to chat about anything and you can also ask the guest questions ahead of time. And if you don't want to do that, but you're enjoying the podcast, if you want to give a review on Apple or Spotify, that is the quickest and easiest way to show some love. And later this week, the last episode of 2023, just in time to make a holiday charcuterie board, we have Madeline the Cheese Lady to teach us all about cheese, what microbes are used to make cheese, the different brines that are used, the drying and curing process, all the science of cheese. So really excited about that. I learned so much recording that episode. And today's guest is Stephen Philpott Jr. Stephen is a veteran, he's a researcher, and he has a unique brain. He has narcolepsy, and he's actually the first person I've ever met with narcolepsy. There's pretty much no research on the intersection of cannabis and narcolepsy that I found, which is why I think Stephen's experience is so valuable. He was telling us that he often reacts to products in the opposite way that other people do. So for instance, cannabis typically makes people feel really sleepy, but for him, he uses cannabis to feel awake and alert. And same thing with psilocybin mushrooms. He will use mushrooms to help him fall asleep. Okay, cool. So welcome back to the Bioactive Podcast. Today we have Stephen Philpott Jr., who I recently uh, met in Las Vegas. I had followed your content before, I had seen it before, but I have a completely different perspective on you now after we hung out and we sashed together and we had a great time going out in Vegas. So I really appreciate you being on the podcast. If you wouldn't mind just giving a quick kind of introduction to yourself, and then we'll talk about your really diverse background because I think that's what really makes your unique perspective so important. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Um, I guess without giving away all the good stuff. Um, so right now I'm a PhD researcher at NC State University. I am currently working with fiber hemp. Um, so I hate having to use the words hemp or marijuana, right? But we have to use the legal designations uh, so I'm currently working with fiber hemp in North Carolina, and we are breeding and screening for varieties from all over the world to try to grow something that's resilient to climate change in North Carolina. So, right, we get hit by a lot of hurricanes in North Carolina, so we need something that's resilient to flooding and salinity, where other people might need something that, you know, is resilient to drought. We're trying to find something that's resilient to flooding and salinity. So that's what I'm working on right now. When we're looking specifically for fiber hemp, uh, is that something we can look for on a genetic level or is that something that's just bred over time and then it's, you know, those are the traits we're looking for, the phenotype? Or how do we how do we find quality fiber hemp versus something like smokable CBD flour from hemp? Yeah, so I'm really glad that you asked that. I just told somebody today, my master's research was on floral cannabis. So now I'm working with 
quote unquote fiber cannabis. Um, and to answer your question, unlike floral cannabis that was recently just genetically bred for high THC, fiber cannabis has been bred for we don't know how long. Um, but there's genetics that are very popular, Chinese genetics, Italian genetics, um, tons of genetics from overseas, but America has not yet. Like if you ask somebody, what's the popular American fiber hemp, people look at you like, ah, there's some <laughs> companies that exist, but we grow for THC over here. Um, so that's what's really there... interesting. We. Oh, sorry, keep going. I, I have so many No, no, questions. I was just going to say that there's nobody's really developed like American varieties for fiber hemp. So the opportunities are are huge. I was going to ask, um, I agree that the opportunities are huge. You're the first person I've talked to who's worked in this space, which is crazy because we talked to so many people in the cannabis space. Um, but I guess my question would be, are there any companies that are making hemp product, like hemp-based products in the U.S.? And what are the main products that are made from hemp i know i've heard of like sales i know the word uh like a, a canvas bag comes from cannabis right because that's also made from fiber hemp what are the other uses of fiber hemp yeah so it's really interesting you know i loved working with floral cannabis and i'm like we all work with floral um i was a home grower in illinois i had a medical card i was allowed to grow in my house um so like very experienced on the floral side fiber totally different so right now we grow fiber and it's used mostly for textiles right okay, so cool. textiles is one of the least sustainable industries on the planet um if you ever look up like youtube videos there's a i think there's a there's a dump somewhere that's just clothes where all the clothes i've seen it i've recycle. seen it oh right a giant so, pile so just like massive pile of clothes yeah so like one of the big things that i'm interested in is how do we make an industry like that more sustainable? So a lot of that is plastic. A lot of that is uh, polyester and it doesn't, it doesn't break down. So when you make clothes out of hemp, um, not only are you taking some plants that captured carbon, right? And you're fixing that carbon and putting it in a semi-permanent use, but you've also just replaced something that might've been a plastic uh, piece of fiber that ended up somewhere in a dump or somewhere in the ocean. So it's like long-term, big picture, but like floral cannabis was the gateway. And now I'm looking at fiber cannabis and I'm like, wait, this is the same plant to answer your question. Um, when people talk about genetically, it's like, ah, this is the same plant. Why couldn't you take the stalks from a marijuana plant and use that? And it's like, well, depending on the quality of the fiber, you could, but it, it, it's very difficult. There's a trade-off, but it's all the same plant. And now that I'm researching both, I'm like, I don't know anybody who researches the flower and the fiber type cannabis. It was a leap to do my PhD, but I was like, if I learn about both and I take the time, I think I might have like a niche that I don't know anybody else that's speaking on yet. So yeah, yeah. that's where I am now. Invest in yourself. I love that. And there's such a gap in the industry here. It's so important. Um, this might be a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, can you use male and female plants for fiber purposes? So that's a really good question. So male plants are typically, to answer your question, yes, you could use both. What are we growing? We are growing female plants. These are female plants before they flower. Um, so that's the cool thing. It doesn't really matter, but the female plants are what you're growing because the male plants are what we're using for pollination, 
right? The female plants, we want that vegetative growth. We want them to be really, really thin, like pencil thin. Okay. Um, so think about cannabis when we say, quote unquote, marijuana. Everybody brags about how big their flowering plants get. For fiber, you only want the vegetative growth. So you're not I even getting to that. sexual reproduction. Yeah, so you want these really, really thin. It looks like bamboo almost when you're finished growing. Um, because the can fiber you that you want is... At, yes. Like after we record, can you share a picture? I would love to see it. Oh, I can share a bunch of crazy pictures of trichomes and, and fiber. Um, but yeah, the outer part of that plant ends up becoming fiber. They take that, they harvest the plant, they let it like sit on the ground, dry, wet, and they bail it after they separate the inner fiber from the outer fiber. So to answer your question, the inner fiber is the herd. That's what they use for hempcrete animal bedding, things of that nature. That needs to be processed. The outer fibers look just like, they look like fibers. You can literally peel them apart and you can see them. Those are the ones that turn into textiles. Interesting. Okay, so at that stage of growth, it if you let it grow longer, is it just developing too much material there and then it's not easy to separate and process? So that's one of the biggest issues right now in the hemp industry. Everybody's like, if it's so good, if it's so great, why isn't everybody growing it? Because the processing. Um, so the bigger and thicker the stalk is, the harder it is to actually process, which is why you only want that certain diameter of fiber. People in textiles are very specific. Um, in cannabis, quote unquote marijuana or floral cannabis, we're kind of like, what are the rules? <laughs> Uh, what did uh, Matthew McConaughey say? It's a woozy. It's a wazzy. It doesn't exist. <laughs> like, yeah, for floral cannabis, it's like you can have high rates of variability. With fiber, you cannot. It will change the quality of your fiber. So I'm seeing a side of cannabis that is highly, highly scientific. And I'm like, oh, well, that's why the U.S. isn't as involved because other countries, you know, they've taken this a lot more serious. So, um, yeah, it's it's really interesting seeing the difference between the two. And scientifically, it's still a plant, so we're able to research it as long as it is hemp and not marijuana. We can research it at a state university, so it's really cool. That is so cool. Do we know anything about the economics of, like, you know, per acre or whatever unit, um, the cost or the or how much you could get out of a fiber-type crop versus a flower-type crop or floral-type crop? Yeah. Oh, this is one of my favorite questions. So I never knew this acreage wise. So this is what I'll tell you for fiber hemp. You can grow up to 1 million plants per acre. Because they're so small. Oh, you can't this grow makes so anything. So, so the density that we grow the plants at actually help it stay small and skinny. Because they self thin, right? They compete with each other for nutrients. Just like a forest. Hundred percent. So the so one of my one of my classmates, and this is not my research, this is our lab, but her research showed that the less plants there are, cannabis will turn into a tree. I'm talking about like as big as my forearm. And the more that you put in one space, they'll grow thinner. And we were like, I was like, whoa, this is legit. Like that's that's really important information because on the floral side, nobody's talking about that. Nobody's talking about the density at which you grow to maximize, hey, don't waste the amount of seeds that you put in the ground, but also when does the amount that you plant in an area affect your nutrients, affect how they grow, affect the cannabinoid profile. We haven't even gone down that path yet of how flexible the plant is. 
So Please I started seeing all these different I, things. Yeah. I want to know it all. <laughs> So yeah, that that's like, and that's just in our lab, like just ideas that we have. What's missing? What did cannabis miss out on? You know, I have much bigger ideas. Um, I was inspired by George Washington Carver um, and some of the work he did with um, Henry Ford that a lot of people don't know about. So Henry Ford and George Washington Carver were best friends. There's pictures of them everywhere. They were super, super close. Um, and what's interesting is they worked together on what? Plant science. And guess what, what, what are the plants that they worked with? Cannabis. It was hemp. And the reason that they worked with hemp was because George Washington Carver's work. Have you heard of Kimergy? No. It's a science that like George Washington Carver founded. But it's the science of, I think, using essentially the leftover materials from plants and using them as like in a renewable fashion. So he told farmers, instead of growing tobacco and cotton, grow sweet potatoes and peanuts because they were good for the soil, right? And they were good right. for the human body so you could sell them. And that's, we thought George Washington Carver was famous for peanut butter. He really had a revolutionary idea that at the time was crazy. So Henry Ford and George Washington Carver made a car using plant materials and fueled it using biofuel within five years of nylon coming out and they got shut down. That so that is... was when cannabis prohibition really started. Like before that, hemp for victory, we're all growing fiber hemp. There's people who are alive who are like, oh yeah, hemp for victory. The USDA was paying farmers to grow fiber hemp to support the war. Then nylon came out, the war ended and now hemp is a threat to Nylon? I'm like, man, that's a bogus story for cannabis to go out on. It really is. And there's so many like similar stories like that that have inhibited our industry for so long. And it's still so obvious. We see it in even social media censorship that they're trying to constantly silence us because we know this plant is good for so many things, not just on our health and wellness level, but as you're talking about in textiles and fuel and, you know, these things that we use every day and that we're creating new every day, um, we can use biodegradable material that is easy to cultivate. Um, but that's, I guess, you know, I think we all should be pretty mad about that, but we can't focus too much on that because we have so yeah. much... <laughs> education sometimes you have to slowly educate people like sorry i didn't mean to upset everybody there's still opportunities but like that's part of my it. story is peeling back that like hey there's opportunities that look great that don't cause a lot of change and then there's opportunities that might not look so great but there's real change behind them and you know i know i haven't talked about being a marine but that's part of being a marine is like being transparent hey, we don't necessarily like what's ahead of us, but we should be honest about it so that we can tackle it with as much intention as we can. So yeah, that's how a Marine turns into a scientist. <laughs> and I think I think Marines make great scientists. Let's let's also, let's talk about that. Like, so how, how did you go from being in the Marines to being a cannabis scientist? That's not a necessarily normal pipeline that people take, but... Um, I think it, it is really special. And I think that discipline comes through and that pride comes through when you talk about cannabis. And, and thank you for your service, too. Thanks. I appreciate it. And um, I think something that was really easy for me was anecdotal experience, right? So I'm a scientist and researcher now. 
it's very difficult for a lot of us to leave whatever traditional academic or professional experience we have to even say the words canvas publicly. So um, like I grew up in Chicago, you know, my own family traumas like we all have. Um, but having narcolepsy as a kid and not knowing it until I turned 30, I didn't really have good grades growing up. So I was the kid, your teacher's like, you're so smart. You're so, you just don't apply yourself. And in my head, I'm like, I can't keep my eyes open and I'm hallucinating while you're teaching this boring topic. Yeah, you're so, like, I'm given 110%. You just do not see that. Yeah, so, you know, really good at sports. Socially, you know, I went to seven schools in the first eight years of my life, first through eighth grade. So I became very social, got in sports, learned how to just maneuver. And when high school was over and everybody went to college, I was like, where's everybody going? And they were like, what do you mean? Where are you going? And I was like, oh, well, you know, I, I literally, when I say school was a place that you went to, when you grow up with like trauma in your family or in your neighborhood or you live in Chicago, sometimes you're in survival mode, like, all right. Let me just get out of here and figure stuff out. So when I graduated high school, I tried to go to college. They were like, you have a 1.8 GPA? Sorry, we're not going to take you. I'm like, no, my teacher said I'm really smart. I, I just don't apply myself. So join the Marines. Every man in my family has served in the military since World War One. Um, wow. Which, as, as a black man, is just not something you hear. Like, people make it seem like it's a contradictory statement. Um, and truthfully, the only reason that I even know my family history is because if you're in the military, you have service records. Most black wow, people in America do not have, that. yeah, most black people in America do not have deep historical records And my whole life. I thought I didn't until I joined the military and I was like, Whoa, since 18, blah, blah, blah. You've had people in your family that are in the military. So. Um, I had a cousin that was a three-star general in the Navy, and I took a lot of pride in my military career. And because people told me, because of my grades, I couldn't be anything in the military, um, I got to travel the world. I had a very unique job. Um, I was in charge of like a special system, whereas a 19-year-old, I was in charge of millions and millions of dollars worth of equipment. And they're essentially just like, hey, you're not a kid. We need you to like, grow up you signed up like get it together and i loved it i loved the pressure like i loved the structure the organization i thrived and then i got deployed for 13 months fractured my leg um got to see some of the most beautiful things in the world and some of the saddest things in the world all in can, 13 months can you say where you were deployed yeah so i got deployed in 2011 um, we were an emergency response team to supposed to go to Libya. Um, so we're, because of the Gaddafi thing that was going on, um, it ended up not being what we thought it was going to be. And it ended up being us going on, like they kind of, it's called a Mew. So Marine expeditionary unit. So I was part of the 22nd Mew. Uh, we ended up okay. going to Djibouti, Africa and doing humanitarian stuff. We went to Jordan, you know, which is interesting to see the news right now. I've, I've walked in the river of Jordan in between Israel and Jordan. Um, I've seen people on both sides while I stood in the river. So like my experiences when I came back home, I was just like, America's so small. 
Yeah, it's I so bet. so small. So being injured and having that feeling, to be honest, I was depressed. I was so depressed. I had surgery on my leg. Well, you were an athlete through like your whole life, right? Like like exercise, being active was always a part of. And I mean, I'm curious too because we're going to talk about exercise, but I would assume that exercise has a relationship with narcolepsy as well, and maybe you know that was part of uh, your. your process of maintaining that kind of baseline as well so an injury where all of a sudden you break your leg and you're not able to do this super integral part of your everyday process like i can't imagine the the effects and the changes that would happen and and i i mean i think yeah depression is i think absolutely normal in that type of situation yeah and to your point you know my fitness was I don't want to say it was everything, but even my closest friends to this day from when we were younger, like they know me, they're like, yeah, that was Steve, you know, he's always kind of been into wellness, into fitness. Um, I've always thought that was camaraderie, like regardless. Um, I always saw like people from different backgrounds, people who identified differently, they could come together and play sports. So having that taken away, I was just like, oh, this is the only reason the military let me in is because I was able to physically do something. So in my mind, if I lost my physical ability, I was like, oh, this is when they say in the military, you're not useful anymore. Like, you feel like you can't do anything. And I was just like, right. So this is going on. And I have friends coming back from war and I'm finding out that 20 year olds are taking their lives. And I'm like, what the hell is happening right now? Literally, I was just I felt like I was under attack. I was just like, I'm depressed. My legs messed up. And the other guys in my unit are literally fighting for their lives and one of my buddies was just like hey man you're on percocet like you're having nightmares try cannabis and i was like whoa uh buddy you know i'm in the marines i can't do that (laughs) that's a drug yeah i was because i knew marines who had literally guys were great hey did you hear about jackson did you hear about johnson no why what happened your analysis came back. He's he just got a di- he just got an other than honorable discharge. So you talking about scared beyond scared straight? It's probably the after best way all to put that it. too. Cannabis, cannabis, yeah. putting your entire military career into that just like one sentence. That's so, so sad. So once I had an opportunity to actually try cannabis, because I had two surgeries: one to put a metal plate in my ankle, the other one to remove part of my gastroc so that they could relieve pressure on my Achilles because the plate was squeezing some musculature. It was bad. Yeah, it sounds very uncomfortable. I had gotten up to almost 300 pounds. I'm only six feet. That's way too much weight. Um, So I had sciatica and a bunch of other issues. And I was like, well, I can't re-enlist because physically, I don't know if I could go as intense as I just did the last four years. And it's really hard to say you're only going to do four years and leave. It's like, oh... I put all this effort into this, but the truth is I started reading books about the human body while I was hurt. I got super mm. interested in like how to rehab, how to get back, what was going on with my body. And I said, when I get out the Marines, you know, I met kids in other countries that didn't have opportunities to go to college. I'm going to take my military benefits and I'm going to learn what in the world just happened to my body and I'm going to help other people. So yeah, that's what happened when I got out the Marines, I became a personal trainer got my associates in fitness and exercise, ended up going and getting my bachelor's in kinesiology and nutrition, coached D1 sports for six to eight years and became a sports scientist before leaping into cannabis. Man, I mean, 
this is a concept I love to discuss. It's called radical acceptance. Like when something goes really bad in your life and you just accept the fact that it happened for a reason and that something good is going to come at the end. I use this like way too often. I talk about it all the time. Like like if I miss my exit when I'm driving, I'm like, oh, like I would have died if I took that exit, you know. <laughs> but that, anyway. Look, that, it's, <laughs> honestly, it's a mindset thing. And if your mindset it's a mindset. it, yeah, it's like I can make it happen. And it just allows you to be chronically positive, like believing that the world is working in your favor instead of against you. Um, And, you know, this is kind of what you're describing here is like something pretty terrible happened to you and it really changed your life and spiraled for a bit. But you picked up a book, you you found a passion that you didn't know was a passion because of this injury and you're able to pursue it. And then also your time overseas seeing how not every person not every child has the opportunity to get educated and you from serving in the marines have this opportunity to gain skills and gain knowledge and you recognize that and took that up like all of that together is just a really beautiful kind of story of synchronicity and listening to yourself trusting the process trusting the unknown I think that's really powerful. Yeah, it it was really interesting. I mean, even when you look at kind of the world right now, um, it's very difficult to operate outside of your own head if you've never left America. Um, The best way I can explain it is growing up in Chicago, I know people who've never left their neighborhood. Um, I know people who think you have to pay money to go to the beach downtown when their tax tax dollars are what pay for the beach. So if you think about it, you know, humans starting off in a cave, Every time we expand a little more of what we know, it changes our literal reality, right? It's not that long ago we thought that the earth was the center of the universe. So I'm very open to once you travel to other countries and you're like, hey, that sounds kind of like what we say, but a little different. You all have similar ideas, but slightly different. And I don't disagree with those. I respect the differences. Once you travel enough places, you're like, are we all saying something very similar something that, you know... Is very alike. So you get away from your disdain for other people and you start wondering what you're doing for the planet. What can you do to help other people? Are are you doing something that's maybe not sustainable? That's all you can really control. So after traveling the world, it was one of those. I just want to go back home and make sure that we're as resilient as possible domestically, locally in America. So when I see what's going on now, I'm like, oh, yeah. It's time for us. We need some help. Like we definitely need to use science and facts and more objectivity um, to come together because most of us can't imagine the things that we see on TV. And as a Marine, once you travel and you come back home, you're like, we have so many opportunities here. And it's just like being at a a dysfunctional family reunion or something for Thanksgiving. You're like, if my family just chilled out, we'd be great. So (laughs) I mean, I was not in the Marines, but I've traveled with these. I I was like pre-med in in college. I've, you know, traveled to Honduras. I've traveled to India. I've traveled to these other places. And my perspective coming home was like never the same. And it takes so long to actually kind of get used to life back home, too, because you're like, there's too much here. There's just too much going on. It seems unnecessary. And you just feel selfish um, oftentimes, or at least I did. Um, I do as an American. You just feel like you're the over-consumptive, over-consumerism. It's just a lot. And we don't focus on the right things like other cultures, like family and uh, community and 
medicine. You know, it's it's really all focused on just the the day to day rat race that we're all running. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. And I mean, that was one of my other things that inspired me. You know, I told you that a friend of mine recommended, hey, you know, they have you on Percocet, they have you on hydrocodone. You're having nightmares. The first time I took hydrocodone was the first time I had uh, sleep paralysis and nightmare loops. And, you know, like, yeah, I'll give anybody a buffer if they don't like visual things. But the truth is, people that have narcolepsy are not often just falling asleep. A lot of times they're hallucinating in a way where they're still in the room on an auditory level. But as far as their brain processing and what they can see, they may be in a different world. Let's keep talking about this because I was highly, highly uneducated on narcolepsy. As you know, we talked in Vegas and I'm like, can you drive? And that was like a highly rude stigmatizing comment. No, it's a common question. Yeah, but it's (laughs) dumb. Like I should not have asked that. So anyway, um, like what I know there's different types of narcolepsy now. I've, I've done my research at this point, but I I still don't know like what it's like in your head or as you're talking about these hallucinations. You know, I'm very open about the fact that I've had seizures. I have some sort of epilepsy. That's hard to describe to people, too, because it's something that's so inside of you, so personal to your experience. Um, But I think it would help people understand narcolepsy just a little more if you could kind of like walk us through what's that what that's like and like what the diagnosis was like because it's relatively uncommon you didn't find out till you were 30 years old and it's affected you your whole life so like what has that been like yeah so again as a kid i thought that i was just sleepy you know it was hey you got a detention because you fall asleep you don't finish your work you fall asleep if there's an exam you fall asleep and it was just like well i'm always the kid that falls asleep if everybody says i'm so intelligent and it affected my grades. Like you can imagine falling asleep in class for your entire life and what it does. And to be truthful, adults don't want to hear about a sleepy kid. They're like, I work. Are you kidding me? Oh, and I used yeah. to tell people, I don't remember falling asleep. I was awake, I was listening, and then I woke up. And they'd be like, no, you fell asleep. And I'm like, the sleep part didn't happen. I just woke up from being asleep. So I started realizing early on, I needed to essentially watch my mind. I'm a big like Marvel fan, big at like altered states of consciousness. Like before I knew a name for it, I knew that I needed to just be careful because I fall asleep some places at the wrong time. Adults didn't believe me. My parents were like, hey, we don't, there's nothing wrong with you. You're super smart. You're just lazy. And I'm like, I guess that is how you describe my disability. Yeah, Yeah, I'm smart. I'm just lazy. That's a great way to describe it. So I guess I'll describe this. You know, one time a family member who was an alcoholic asked me to do a task. They walked into my room at like 2 a.m. They asked me to do a task. I got up and did the task. I walked through the room, put on my clothes. I called them on the phone. I said, where are you? I can't find you. Um, And they were like, hey, I'm actually gone already. You missed me. I tried to wake you up so you could help me. I went back in the room and I laid down. Like, I don't know how much longer... That same person was shaking me in my bed. I had never woken up. I had never gotten out the bed. I had never gone and answered the phone. I had walked through my whole house and accomplished these very specific tasks. To this day, I still remember them. And that turned into an incident in my family where I was thought to be disobedient. So then I'm scared to fall asleep. 
And that's not a good relationship to have with sleep. You don't want to be afraid to fall asleep because then you're doing anything to stay awake. And your hallucinations were like, like super real. Like that was hard to disseminate between reality and and not reality, which is scary. And if and as a kid, there's no definition for that. There's no definition that you can't explain to a kid like. There's altered states of consciousness. One is dreaming. One is, and I was just like, okay. So when people used to say like, pinch me to see if I'm dreaming. When I heard that for the first time, I was like, that's a good one. I'm going to put that one in my back pocket. Mm. But things like inception, like like concepts like that, er, very early on, I was like, hey, keep yourself awake. Keep yourself awake. Count one, two, three, four, five. And I'd be like, oh, I fell asleep on 20 this time. Um, and what was super interesting was I started lucid dreaming on accident, just trying to see how long I could count to stay awake. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. What was that was like, like the first time? <laughs> so I was breathing. And so before I tell you what lucid dreaming was like, narcolepsy itself was like this before I got to the cool stuff my brain could do. Right. Um, right, right. The scary I would be portion. sleeping. I'd be sleeping. You know, I find myself like kind of breathing heavy. And then I'd find myself slowly becoming conscious, like, oh, I'm sleeping, I'm waking up. And I would look around the room and I would see like shadowy figures, hear like noises that didn't exist. Ooh, just stuff is like, all right, is somebody playing a prank on me? But I can't move, it's sleep paralysis. Oh, man. So then that's not the worst part. The worst part of narcolepsy is I would then gasp for air, just out of freaking out, and I'd wake up. But when I woke up, it was really the dream starting over. And I would have that same loop. That like five seconds of what I just described to you, that would happen over and over and over. After I got out the military, I had surgery. I was on, you know, legal prescribed drugs. Nobody knew. Like, I don't know anybody who's talked about opioids and narcolepsy, but you can imagine what it can do. And you can get trapped like in your brain. And my first thought was this is when people start doing real drugs. And when my friend said cannabis can help you, I was like, I'd try anything right now because I I have friends that I lost to the exact same pills I was prescribed. So this became very intriguing for me how a plant could replace right this pill. But all that to say, that was what the nightmare loops were like. The lucid dreaming was me breathing and realizing I was breathing, but I hadn't moved in a really long time. So your That's the brain, best way I can explain it. Does your brain still feel the same as if you were just awake and doing things? Or is there like a fog over it? Is it kind of like eerie? The first couple of times, there's definitely a fog. And like, I could see how, I'd say most people have probably had the experience, but it freaked them out and they woke up. Because there's been many mm. times where I was just like, hey, I'm in an underwater dream and I'm breathing water, that's not a real thing. And then my brain would go, mm. boom, now you're back home. And I go, damn, if I had just relaxed, maybe I would have been able to think about where I was and what I was doing. When you're a neurodivergent and you can like, you're like, hey, my baseline isn't everybody else's. Just for me to have a functional job, just for me to, can, you can imagine being a Marine. I couldn't tell anybody this. Yeah. And fitness actually helped me regulate my dreams. It helped me stay, you know, in that good state. So again, which is when so I got hurt, cool, right? Because yeah, fitness well, is really activating your ECS, your endogenous cannabinoid system. And like before you even found the plant, 
your body like was benefiting from these cannabis like molecules and it's so cool that you learned that you listened to your body and you were able to like integrate that into your lifestyle saying i need this every single day just like using cannabis you need it every single day for neurological conditions like this and i was I, I never wanted to really talk to anybody i had a friend that had cancer twice as a kid he's the person who recommended cannabis to me so it wasn't like i just had somebody like try hey man it wasn't like you know i, I we had to do dare as a kid we had to sing yeah. dare to keep a kid off drugs in order to graduate fifth grade oh, you no. had to sing the dare song there's, I'm just glad social media was there's there's a there's a video somebody's mom has of us singing the dare song in fifth grade. So you can imagine to go from that to one of your friends from church going, hey, I had cancer. If these opioids are messing with your head, try this. Now, I don't think they should have recommended, you know, like a six foot bong, a gas mask, a gravity bong, because that's a lot to start off with. That's but to lot. be honest, for two or three days, you know, just kind of hanging out on their couch, I didn't take any opioids. And it was flour. You were smoking flour the first time? It it was it was flour. And the thing is, I had been in a car. I had done the, what do they call it? The uh, the Clinton. It's like, oh, I, I didn't inhale. Right? Yeah. When I was younger, just being in a, in a setting trying to be cool. But intentionally, that was the first time after my surgery, I was like, oh, I'm trying this and it's helping me not take this Percocet. So you were using it for pain and for your neurological condition, whether that's, you know, narcolepsy specifically or just whatever was going on in your brain. And it just immediately, you just felt like at ease. Like you felt like this, this vibes with me. You never felt overwhelmed or did your friend kind of like walk you through using cannabis? Like the, were you using like a indica type and sativa type i'm only saying that for ease of conversation here but i mean like yeah you know did you find your brain responded really well to a specific type of cannabis or was it just like thc and my brain makes me feel amazing yeah so at first right at this point i know nothing about any of that i have a friend right. that has flour they have parties they they hang out right in a college town not far from where my military base is um, and that's what they do. They kick it. So to me, I'm like, they don't drink a lot of alcohol here, right? The, the parties that I hear that are violent, these are always the cool parties. And to be honest, I know this sounds really funny, but like, if you see a lot of different people all at one party and they're relaxing, I'm like, that's the cool party. What party is that? There's people from yeah. different colleges and there's, there's people who end up turning to be like famous artists and stuff. They want to come kick it. So like one of my friends, that was his place come to find out later it's because hey everybody there had flour um so it was really Makes awesome sense. because i got to see people use it as a recreational agent to relax which i already know about but my grandfather who i you know i buried on my 16th birthday he had he had cancer and while he was doing chemo he got caught smoking weed by the police and they didn't arrest him but they took his weed and then they were just like you know somebody has to come pick you up so again, oh, I have all man. these experiences, recreational, seeing all this stuff. And when it was my turn to make a decision, I looked up the information that was online. I made an informed decision and I got high and I feel like it saved my life. So did you experiment with cannabis right before going back to school? And then that kind of helped you through kinesiology school. Was that the timeline here? Because, you know, obviously 
you talked about struggling as a student before. Did did using cannabis help at all when you went back to school and focusing and bringing your brain at ease, allowing you to have a normal sleep schedule? Like, what was that relationship like? Yeah, so as I'm going to school for kinesiology, I originally wanted to just go for fitness and wellness, right? But as I start learning about energy systems, I start learning about physiology, genetics. I'm like, oh, I love this. I could do this forever. Um, So during those processes, even when you learn, you gave a great example. I started learning about epilepsy and I was like, A, I hadn't been diagnosed with narcolepsy. So everything we're talking about, me and you, it's not a real thing at this point. It's just something that I have to learn how to deal with in secrecy because I haven't been diagnosed. I'm doing sleep studies, brain scans, heart scans for a decade before I get diagnosed. But at this time, my buddy was like, hey, man, you know, you used flour when you were injured before. You haven't used it since. CBD is about to be legal. He's been telling me for a decade cannabis is going to be legal. Everybody has that one friend. He was the friend who's been telling me that. And he was like, I'm telling you from a wellness perspective. His family grew up vegan before it was cool to be vegan, before there was tasty foods to eat. So at this point, I'm just like, all right, if I'm going to trust somebody, I'm going to trust this person. And through that process, I ended up learning that, you know, there's different ailments that people have that are undiagnosed. So I'm like, I think I got this narcolepsy thing. Some people have illnesses and it's not diagnosed. So I it's like if you think you're diagnosed, the best thing you should do is inform, you know, yourself on what research is out there. Long story short, when I saw that CBD was being used for epilepsy, I was like, CBD is being used for a condition to regulate people with a dysfunction somewhere in their brain. My sleep pattern is a dysfunction, and I'm just making an assumption that maybe, maybe it'll help me. I started using CBD, nothing. I started increasing my concentrations of CBD, and I started sleeping better. And I was like, whoa. Interesting. Do you remember what that concentration was? A lot. It's okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was a lot. I mean, this was like RSO level. Like. Yeah. That's what you need. That. Yeah. Yeah, So it was like, like... and it was full plant extract. It wasn't. It wasn't isolates. Okay. It was gross. It was like going in tea, like drinking something. Yeah. Or just eat straight, straight down there, so you can just get it over with. Yeah. So pretty much at the end of my coaching career, you know. I was using cannabis. At this point, I'm vaping. I'm vaping at work because it's private, right? It's yeah. not legal yet, but I hear it's going to be legal in Chicago where I live. So while I'm working in strength and conditioning with athletes, helping them increase their performance, reduce their injury rate, when I go home from this high, ah, you can imagine the former Marine who they want me to be publicly. I'm not always comfortable with that because I do have narcolepsy and my energy is very important. So I would go home. Mm-hmm smoke and whatever energy felt like it was off it was just like back to baseline every time i wasn't sleepy i wasn't energized i was just awake and relaxed so what i learned was i learned about fight or flight and rest or digest while i was in school Mm. and i was like wait 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 i'm hearing about this endocannabinoid system thing that's about homeostasis and all they talk about in kinesiology and human performance all physiology is about homeostasis. Everything is about maximizing homeostasis. And it clicked for me and I said, I'm willing to leave sports science, kinesiology, all these jobs I've had. I'm willing to jump over to the other side before everybody realizes what's happening. And I'm just very fortunate that, you know, I was able to go to an academic institution and do some research 
until you know we could have conversations like this because three years ago oh hundred totally different world <laughs> and you know it's it's really interesting you bring it up in that way because i think the concept of balance is very obvious to everyone just like peace in the world balance right but i think so many people don't know what balance feels like and if you don't know what balance feels like and if you don't know what that baseline is like then it's difficult to try to find that baseline, right? Like if, you are, if you're always, you know, hyperactive, for example, and you've never felt calm and at ease, you wouldn't even like know to chase that. So it's really cool that you started to understand homeostasis and balance after you felt it because you were like, that is how I should feel. That's how I'm going to operate at my best. And you know you're not alone in this, which was also kind of the beautiful thing. It's like if you're benefiting this much from using it not only for narcolepsy but also for pain management, you got to think that there's a, a million other reasons that people would want to use this plant. And, and you saw that and you saw the vision of how healing this plant is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think one of the, again, to your point, the balance part was very interesting to me as an athlete and then as someone who started learning about how to help athletes reach their maximum potential, I'm like cortisol, fight or flight, right? Adrenaline. So you hear the positives of these things and then you learn, hey, so if you're stressed out, if you're chronically depressed, if there's some type of trauma, these hormones can stay elevated long-term and they can cause dysfunction, you know, at, at, at these glands. And now you have total systemic dysfunction from stress and I was like whoa yeah it is um it is and, and it can present itself differently in different people and those hormone levels are so important for regulating literally everything in our body whether it's appetite or mood and our ECS is involved in all of this so activation of our endocannabinoid system if we have imbalanced hormones if we have imbalanced systems it can help bring balance to those systems and again a lot of people with these very complicated backgrounds are living with this imbalance but just have no idea until they use cannabis for the first time and they say whoa, what just happened? Why do I feel amazing right now? Absolutely. Yeah, I was with one of my buddies one day and he said, hey, you're the only person I know who consumes cannabis to stay awake. And I like turned and like panned to him slowly like I was a character on The Office. And I was like, I've never heard anybody say that before. He was like, yeah, man, it gets a stigma for making people sleepy, but like you're already sleepy. So maybe it's just fixing you. And this is just my friend, right? Very arbitrarily, not scientifically, just making an anecdotal observation. And this light bulb just popped on in my head. And I was like, cannabis has something to do with energy systems. Just on based on when I think about very like take a big step back, if it gives you the munchies and it causes you to want to consume, to me in physiology and nutrition, consumption of calories, right? Different types of forms of energy, protein, carbs, fats. They have yep. different amounts. of So so I'm thinking like big picture. I'm like, oh, wow, this there's this entire system that has to do with most of our most important physiological functions from digestion to respiration. And I'm like this. We discovered this because somebody was looking at the active molecules and cannabis plants. That's a pretty big discovery. So when pretty I was big discovery. Side, yeah, <laughs> like let's not just let's it, not just like... blow past that. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, and we still don't. I mean, as far as other systems in our body go, the, the discovery of the ECS was way later than the other systems. And for how important it is, that is actually insane. But that's also probably the reason it wasn't discovered until late is it's kind of ubiquitous through our body. And if something's kind of everywhere, it can be hard to see because it's not sticking out compared to the other systems in our body like serotonin or dopamine system that are you know, much more localized. Yeah. I always, I always wanted to work on like the runner's high. Cause to me, I, we, when, when I was a sports scientist, the devices that we use, they were gyroscopes, magnetometers, accelerometers, GPS, collected a ton of data on athletes. They could detect G force. They could detect how long it took you to hit the ground and how long it took you to stand back up. A lot of data, like crazy data points. But the cool thing was with all that data, we found out that there were even like psychological components to it if someone was stressed out guess what their numbers just didn't add up it's like hey this should be the best day of the week for you on paper we've been priming you and it's like oh what happened it's finals week and i'm a college athlete and i'm so stressed out psychologically that something internally is affecting my numbers of what i can output and i'm like oh we don't understand the human body we don't understand performance we don't understand limitations we don't understand stress. So I got really interested in what's the difference between an athlete that can do the same task over and over perfectly without fatiguing, without making a mistake, without becoming too overly stimulated. That's what we call flow states. When they say some, mm. an athlete is in the zone or somebody's running or swimming. Or when you're playing I forgot music. I was swimming yeah, for swimming. Oh yeah, that's that's why I use cannabis before I exercise specifically with swimming. It's my favorite form of exercise. And you just feel like a fish. Like if you can hit that flow state, you are literally just going to feel like a fish. And it is so fun to exercise. And it's such a full body workout, but it's not a lot of stress on your joints. It's just like it amazing feeling like just swimming through jello. It's playful. It's very playful. I do a lot of sensory deprivation. Um, I'm into like another bunch of weird stuff like Marvel comics and different things like that. I love um, it. The universe, a bunch of, right? Because you have to have that stuff as your casual passion when you're doing PhD <laughs> research. You um, need to have other stuff you care about. Yeah, but, but that's one of the things that's really interesting. You know, in kinesiology, we're like 10 minutes into exercise. People go from hyperventilating. They go from thinking a lot about exercise. They go to, I don't want to do this. My joints hurt. To if they can push through those first 10 minutes, they're like, how long have I been running? I'm in like, my feet are kind of moving separately from what I'm thinking about, right? When you started off left foot, right foot, now you're daydreaming and your body has reached this state where it can balance the external stimulus of pushing against the ground and the internal internal stimulus of producing force. There, Everyone's body has a different state where that balance is. And that's what interested me about the ECS. I'm like, we say balance and homeostasis, but for years we didn't really have a definition balance what are you thanos like what kind of balance literally what does that mean <laughs> yeah so learning about the ecs and learning about these you know the chemical signaling and the electrical signaling in our bodies it's like this is way deeper than cannabis and as someone who went to school for kinesiology i am waiting for us to get an investment you know the one thing i'm like i don't necessarily see at all the benefits of schedule three but i'm hoping we can do research for veterans research for athletes Research for people who are chronically ill, because saying that there's no medical benefits and putting it in the same category as heroin, 
with 40 out of 50 states having some type of medical or recreational cannabis program, that's just blindly, you know, it's not, it doesn't allow consumers to be informed. And I think that's what we need, safe, informed consumption. Exactly. And we have a lot of educators and part of the safe, informed consumption would also have to involve censorship and the lift on censorship for channels that are offering educational information, you know, but but I agree. And, And once you're in the industry specifically, you start to see all of these people just trying to hold you down, like as an industry. Um, I think a lot of different larger industries are very scared of the cannabis industry because of the potential to replace opiates like what you're talking about or to replace alcohol as a recreational substance for people to chill and relax. And I think there's there's a lot of people lobbying against it. But I think as a community and as more and more people start to discover this medicine for so many different applications, we're going to eventually grow in enough numbers where they're going to have to make it accessible to everyone because right now there's just the amount of push towards us using these toxic substances instead of natural products like cannabis, as you're saying, does not make any sense. We have no data to support it. We have so much to support it in the opposite direction. So when are we going to let the data speak? When are we going to let the data speak? Because the day that we let the data speak is the day that we have legalized cannabis everywhere in the world. Yeah. And I mean, and I absolutely love the point you just made. I think that was kind of like the second phase right of my stepping off point, um, like right before COVID, when there was a lot of civil unrest, a lot of stuff going on in the world. I always tell people I'm an American, I'm a Marine and I'm a black man. And truthfully, like sometimes the experiences don't always cross over. And when stuff was going on, I felt so torn between every all the titles that I care about the people that I care about, the communities I care about. And I found myself in another phase of depression, like what is going on? Um, Had some family losses. And again, the same friend was just like, hey man, you're worrying me. I'm concerned about you. Have you ever tried, you know, psychedelics? And I'm like, all right, I tried cannabis, you know, some time ago. You got me there. I like that one. I love your friend. Everybody needs one of these (laughs) friends. Whoever your friend is, like everyone needs one of them in their pocket. So it's my business partner, Earl. I love him, by the way. Um, oh, but again, shout out to Earl. Shout out to Earl. So Earl was, <laughs> the reason that Earl was able to educate me is because he was sick as a kid. So when adults were just making blind conceptions of mushrooms, this, cannabis, this, he was like, it's helping me live, be alive. If that's enough for you, like just support that. So again, I got to this point in my life and he recommended it and I tried multiple forms of psychedelics and truthfully the loop that i was in the depression loop that i was in the like spiraling i remember having this breakthrough moment of just like i don't even know what to call it it was like you have something that you need to do and you've probably been avoiding it so and i was like what is that and it was like the thing that you're most passionate about and i realized all my life experiences could help me transition literally during this psychedelic experience i went from a state of depression to like there's an entire field and industry that is empty and you could go there you could be a pioneer you could meet people like riley like miyabi and you all could be pioneers and before i saw any path i was like either psychedelics make you have really weird thoughts that don't mean anything or you know it means they're telling you something yeah i mean that's we started our nonprofit from a very similar perspective. I think 
just a little little side note, just because it fits into your story so well. But like we both, Miyabi and I, we had worked together for a long time. We stopped working together. Both of us had a really similar psychedelic experience, but completely separately. Then we reconnected. We talked about it, and then started the nonprofit. Like that was <laughs> that was the timeline, which is so crazy. Like, um, you just kind of it was like again everything came together at the right time and we were like we have to talk about this like this is a little too special right now like we I think the the universe is telling us something and we can either listen or ignore it and both of us are very listen to the universe type people and we took the leap of faith you know faith in the unknown we still don't know what's going to happen but so far it's been an amazing journey and I have a feeling it will continue for a long time so hopefully that's true and same for you. It seems like it's going really well. Yeah. And I think some of those, like even those experiences that you may have had in the past, like some of those matter when it comes to making decisions. When I had to first talk to my family, I became a better educator by, I'm going to have to talk to my mom about this. All right. I better make this make sense. So I'm like, hey, mom, you know how you burned essential oils and stuff when I was a kid? So these terpenes that you can smell, these are technically essential oils. Cannabis has essential oils, and these are part of the benefit to why it helps so many people, including your dad, my grandfather, while he was going through chemo. Then my mom, totally different conversation. What we're not talking about smoking weed, we're talking about wellness. We're talking about health. Wow. This is exactly what one of my questions was about how your communication strategy has changed as your perspective changed through through the Marines, through education, from learning about the ECS. And you have communicated with such a diversity of people who come from all these different backgrounds that are highly stigmatized, highly enforced, you know. And, you know, as somebody who now benefits from the medical aspects of cannabis and you're highly educated on the subject, how do you approach these different communities and these different people and telling them, yo, by the way, what you learned about cannabis might not be true. Will you, you know, accept this information? Um, to be truthful, I think if you look at the, the numbers uh, that the boomers have on us, if you look at the influence that they have, if you look at the churches, if you look at principals in school if you look at the age of people who are influential in america there a lot of them are boomers and you have to be almost empathetic and realize if you're a millennial you are the last generation to grow up without the internet and you are the first generation to grow up with the internet so the boomers the information that they had like we are essentially overwhelming them with information and many of them are choosing to remain firm on what they've known their whole life rather than get caught up in new information. And that's a very, right? It, it, it's one of those, it's the way it's always been. And that's very bad for a society who sees change going not in the favor of humanity and life. And we see this in a lot of aspects as you're keeping it broad, not just cannabis. This is, there's a multitude of issues under this umbrella of not wanting to learn and, and be accepting of other opinions. But also, this is also just for everyone, not boomers. Like, if somebody's passionate about something and wants to teach you something, I think we all owe each other a conversation. And then, at the very least, a conversation. And then you can make your decision from there. But even, even millennials and below sometimes struggle with this, too. Yeah, so all of us, and the thing is, and it's not targeting one generation, I realize each generation is separated by the technology that they had to get information. If yeah. your information was a radio and you never saw a person on the screen, you have no clue what I'm talking about. If your information was the first TV, 
you think that you're the most technologically advanced being to ever exist. You see what I'm saying? Every yeah. time there's new technology, we swear we have the answer. And it's really more all of our generations combined instead of being separate. Like, we got it right. We got it right. So what's interesting was just people understand trauma across generations. Yeah. Growing up as a millennial, we were supposed to be the soft generation. We were privileged. And then we grew up with September 11th and wars and climate change. And they're like, we're hard oh. as fuck. We've been through a lot. <laughs> yo, yo, it's just like, hey, I, I'm not trying to diss anybody else. But I think every generation has different trauma. And the truth is, when you start relating, it's like, hey, your uncle from Vietnam has shell shock. Well, that's called PTSD now. And they have treatments for that. So now you're having a conversation that crosses generation. Oh, your generation has shell shock, too. Well, yeah, we've been at war since. The country started pretty much nonstop. Shell shock has been written and described and anecdotally documented. And now my generation has a something called PTSD that they can write down on a piece of paper and give you pills for. But cannabis is a natural treatment. So when you have those conversations, your parents are like the stuff that people smoke. Don't even think about it. Don't go there yet. Just think about a plant, a natural herb. You hear turmeric has benefits, basil has benefits, all these natural herbs have benefits. Think about, let's start there, and then the conversation will totally just change your so mind. So like finding a similarity and bringing that as the communication point and then using language that you both understand to try to make it more relatable. And is that the same uh, with other veterans that you talk about that are either the same age or not the same age? Are you kind of... Have you been kind of like a mentor like your friend has been for you, um, for anybody who's going through kind of similar either depressive episodes or injuries or something something similar to kind of show them the light of the herbal pathway? Yeah, a lot of people, because one thing that talks is like if 40 out of 50 states are doing something when states don't often agree, like name one thing right now that 40 out of 50 states can agree on. Cannabis is one of them. Mm -hmm. One. So you have to really like from an impactful uh, standpoint, you have to at least wonder what's going on. If nothing else, I tell people you don't have to be a consumer to want to be informed to where your tax dollars are going, to what bills are being put into action. You should be at least curious. And I'm saying this is somebody who hated talking about politics and policy, but it governs what I can do as research. It governs what type of funding you all can get for your research. So it is important that everyday people understand, hey, even if I don't consume cannabis, I heard it's just a plant. I heard only yeah. the female flowers are the ones that are illegal and the rest of it is legal. I heard the seeds are rich in omega-3s and omega-6s. You know, I, I, I see hemp seed in Dr. Bronner's. I see it at Whole Foods. I have a lot of questions. Something's not making sense. At this point, everybody just wants information. People want to be informed to make their own decision. That's it at the end of the day. Yeah, and I love that. And a lot of people are just kind of itching for that information and don't really know where to find it because there are there's a lot of misinformation all over the internet, not just about cannabis, about every drug out there, about many different natural products, pharmaceuticals. It's really hard to tell where the right information is. Even sometimes with peer-reviewed studies, I hate to say it, but some of these studies are, are not published out of an unbiased scope. And that is something that we need to be aware of. And it's, it is too bad that you know that sort of kind of corruptness has infiltrated even the systems that we're supposed to trust the mo the most but at the end of the day it's it's everywhere and you kind of do need to talk to people 
often who have used cannabis, who have used other substances and ask for their personal experience because oftentimes, whether it's cannabis or other substances, other natural products, we are the mentors in this community that are teaching other people how to use cannabis, where to find cannabis, how to roll up a joint, how to dose, you know, people who are, you know, the stoners, stoners, big quotes, we're also the educators for cannabis. We are the experts on cannabis. I've tried products in the absolutely wrong dose, had a horrific time, but now I can tell you what not to do. And I can guide you towards a much more pleasant experience because I know in my brain, if I get too high, if I have a negative experience, that's temporary and I'm going to be okay. In my brain, I'm like, it's weed. I need to lay down, but I'm fine. But I don't want that to happen to a new user. And I think it's really cool that you've offered that mentorship and you've also received that mentorship from our community. It kind of shows that no matter what the legal status anywhere, we exist everywhere and you just got to find us and we'll help you. Yeah, I mean, that was the coolest thing, you know, at the end of my career, switching over from sports science into cannabis. My first job, like my first legal job was managing a dispensary for the largest privately owned cannabis company in the United States. And early so I was in a, Chicago legalization, right? Like Chicago legalization. Like I didn't know what an MSO was online. They had jobs for people who wanted to work in the cannabis industry and there was a big veterans, please apply. Now, we all know why they have that now, why it says yes. veterans, please apply. But to me, I'm like, I'm a veteran. I'm interested in the cannabis industry. I definitely consume cannabis. It helps me a lot. Got hired as the inventory manager. So I got to see like everything, shipment. I got to look in the system from the moment the seed was put in the ground, harvested, shipped to us, packaged, saw the whole thing. And I was big on education. My bud tenders, we used to talk about different terpenes. We would talk about what the new research was, what people heard about. And they That's were like, cool. why can't we use this in value? Why can't we use this with the customers? And I was like, technically, we're not allowed to say any of this stuff. Has no no documented medicinal benefits. It's just And just we would plant. talk about all we would talk about all these things. I had just gotten certified as an interpreter. So I'm talking about smells. I'm taking the stuff from kinesiology and I'm crossing off. And people were like, man, you're going to be great. You're going to be awesome. I met the CEO of my company and he goes, man, you're super smart, but this is retail. And it like, oh. I was like, oh, I thought I was going to help veterans so that, you know, something that gives them a PTSD episode they don't consume and something that maybe can help them, they can find regularly. And I realized they couldn't. They couldn't find it regularly. Things right. were changing. The names changed. The profiles change and i was like the marketing I changes i think that's like the, the biggest thing is just the marketing that's really what's driving sales and getting people to try these products but they it might not necessarily be the best thing for them and people like you bud tenders like they really do have a lot of valuable information but of course they don't have time for every single person that comes in to be like hey tell me your whole story and i'll recommend a good product like they're under a lot of stress to keep that line going and you know, everyone blames the bud tenders because they don't know everything. It's like they're sign they're dedicating so much of their time to researching all of this on their own time and they're trying different products, they're they're doing their research, they're talking to people, and they don't have a medical background most of the time. They're doing all of this just because of their love for the plant and the community. So I think bud tenders are doing absolutely enough and I think we should give them more credit and also more free training. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean 
What was interesting was all the managers at the dispensary came from Target and from REI and from retail. All the bud tenders were like, I have a record. I did this in college. I'm a medical patient. I'm 65 years old and I've been consuming this since before you were born. And I was like, that's interesting that the people, you know, the corporate people, zero experience. The managers, no retail and CPG, but not cannabis. And then the people at the very bottom, the hourly workers, the first people to get cut if the business isn't going well, the people who see the customer first and represent the brand, the they were the people yeah. with the most experience, yeah. but they, you know, I was like, you know, I want to go somewhere where it can be more impactful. So I was managing the dispensary and starting my master's at the same time. Wait, just one more note about that, because I feel like even now, if you like look on LinkedIn or you look at these other companies, the higher you get in a company, it's almost always the less likely they are to use cannabis. And like, no, no hate to anyone. But this is like I worked in sales and cannabis for a bit. And I was like, I'm seeing a trend like as you build your way up the company, the, the less likely you are to be a consumer. And I hate that. Yeah, because I mean, you know, it's like certain certain people, if you're making decisions for an industry, if you're not informed, how well can the consumer be informed? You know what people love when they're like, hey, the CEO of the brand who's marketing to me also represents what I represent. They look like me. I can identify with them versus you're making decisions for this company and you have no clue about this. I don't know. <laughs> I agree. I mean, yes, the marketing, even like the language you're using, like kind of this this culture has its own everything um and yeah i think even doing business deals and talking to salespeople and going to events like it's i'm not saying you have to be like a straight up stoner but like you gotta at least have love for the plant or like used to utilize the plant or have a story connection with the plant if you're only in it for money it's like how about you just, again, go work at Target or something? There's so many people who love this plant that would kill to be in that position. And we should have space for everyone like that in the industry. And I'm, this, I, I won't say anything mean about CEOs, but. <laughs> no, no, no. But I mean, it, it's, it's, a it's a really good point to talk about because I think that not a lot of people realize how um, limited the legal opportunities are. Like somebody was like, wait, you worked as a as a dispensary manager? I was like, yeah. And they were like, how many other black dispensary managers did you see in Chicago? And I was like, none. Chicago is one of the biggest places for the war on drugs. So a lot of people in Chicago have been affected by cannabis. Mm -hmm. When people see the crime in Chicago, they're like, oh, why is it so, you know, so bad? I'm like, it's the number one tourist destination in the U.S. three years straight. It's bad in certain areas. And those areas were targeted by the war on drugs. That's how they got that bad. Yeah. So people in Chicago want licenses. Like they want involvement in the industry. They want to be a part of the industry. And the truth is a lot of them were left out. Yeah. And that is too bad. And you know, people are still, even with new markets emerging, it's something that is the people are trying to integrate into the infrastructure of opening a new market, but almost every state does a really bad job at that. And it's something that the entire legal landscape could work on, should work on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the difference between going from like a, not even academic, just a research, right? Knowledge, experiential focus versus repeating policy from the past that yeah. is outdated. And you're like, hey, we're going to make new policy referencing policy from 1937 and 1967 and it's like mm. 
You're repeating the same narrative. Literally, we and we have to reinvent the wheel every single state that is legalized. It, it really doesn't make sense that we don't have some sort of standard best practices that could then be tweaked based on region. Instead, we're just like, yeah, assemble a team, a local team, and, you know, figure it out. doesn't make any sense. But anyway, let's go back to you running a dispensary, but also going to get your master's. That sounds like a lot. Both of those individually sound like a lot. I cannot imagine them together. Obviously, I was interested because I was a veteran. At the time, COVID was starting. And as a sports scientist, I worked with pro sports teams. People forget at the beginning of COVID, sports weren't weren't on television. There was a break from sports. And I was like, if this goes on for a long time, I don't know how many sports teams are going to survive. I started seeing universities cutting sports funding. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh. I need to get out of the sports industry. And even right now, notice how much sports betting you see? They didn't have uh, that much before COVID. Sports betting is marketed everywhere now. I guess, yeah, I've listened to like podcasts where it's um, advertised or, or TV. I, I, I will FanDuel. I, I don't watch sports, but um, you were actually the one who informed me that this was such a big deal during COVID. And I feel like so out of touch for saying this. But yeah, I, I like didn't even think about the sports industry. I remember, like, I have one distinct memory of seeing on TV some, like, a big basketball game, and the stands were empty because they had to be, and it was so eerie, and it was, like, as the players, you know, you you talked about hitting that flow state and the environment. I can't imagine how their game was different when they didn't have that environment around them, and they were playing in a silent gymnasium, and they're used to, like, you know, thousands and thousands of people. Absolutely. So yeah, when I when I saw that going on, I was like, hey, I believe in cannabis and I see that we're going to legalize some here in Illinois. Let me jump ship. And when I was working at those dispensaries, the first dispensary I trained at was medical and recreational. The second one was just recreational. Um, and I think the third one won as well. So I got to see the difference between a half medical, half recreational, like in a warehouse district versus downtown Chicago, wealthiest neighborhood in the third largest city in the country. That's the dispensary I managed. So I saw the Apple store of dispensaries, the bougie, the upscale. The location was called River North, but the nickname is the Viagra Triangle because it's where all the old rich guys in Chicago live. Yeah, I know. But that's what so that's where our dispensary was. And the majority of the people who came in there were seniors. It was older people that were interested in cannabis. It wasn't younger people came in and got pre-rolls, but the people getting like flowers, like you want a half ounce of shake? Who's buying? Oh, it's some older person from back in the day. It's like, hey, all I need is shake. I don't need your Zaza's and your your glues. Just give me the bottom of the barrel. And that's a great way to get like lower potency cannabis, which I don't think talked about enough. Like shake, it might smoke a little harsher, but it's still not going to give you as much of that overwhelming feeling like the 30% THC that you find in dispensaries a lot. Yeah. So some of those older people come in and to your point, they'd be like, hey, you know, I've been making brownies since the 60s. I come in here and I buy my stuff legally now. And they would be so excited to just sit there. And I'm like, all right, ma'am, we've been talking for 15 minutes. You know, I'll talk to you tomorrow. So what do you want? You know? Yeah, you know, they'd be like, oh, wait, I forgot what I came in here for. You know, it's like, oh, stoner brain. Um, but oh, no, in all great. seriousness, like these people would come in. Some of them were Parkinson's. A lot of veterans. Um, a lot of people who you're finding out, you think they're just old, cool people coming in. 
because they do consume daily. But it's that that is it recreational or is it medicinal? It's like well, if it's stress reduction. I I mean you you physically cannot use cannabis and not have medicinal benefits from it. Like it is a medicinal plant. You can't choose when it's beneficial and when it's not. So you, even if you're using it for recreational purposes, you're providing yourself with medicine. You're reducing inflammation. You know, you're helping with stress and cortisol levels. There's so many benefits to, to balancing out your body, even in ways that might not be super obvious. And I think chronically adult use, recreational use cannabis, you likely do have something significantly medicinal happening with your ECS that you're benefiting from. You just haven't pinpointed what that is. Absolutely. And I think that's what was so interesting, learning about cannabis after having a minor in nutrition. We learn mm. a lot about essential oils. We learn a lot about, um, at the time, superfoods was the big word. Mm. So it's so funny because what makes superfoods super? I, I ask everybody this. What makes them super? Profound benefits right so that's a really good way to put it and what we are finding is a lot of the time it's prop it's compounds that have antioxidant properties that's Makes one of the sense. most common things across all superfoods berries right berries was the first one and they were like well yeah they're just berries we know they're good for you and they're like no they're a superfood it's like okay avocado well it's a superfood cranberry so I was learning about what these superfoods were and it was like, these are just plants. These are just fruits. These are vegetables that produce compounds for them, not for humans, that when we ingest them, they have they can have vast health benefits. And there's people in other countries that don't have synthetic medicine. They still consume turmeric and different herbs and different things. And in Morocco, they still have peace pipes that they smoke with cannabis and rosemary and lavender. So I'm like, the U.S. is very behind and we're very synthetic focused. Yes, definitely. And yeah, as you're saying, um, oftentimes these other cultures, the people live significantly longer, too. They have significantly less, uh, you know, heart disease or, uh, you know, mental health issues. We see these trends directly associated with the foods that they eat. The Mediterranean diet's a really good example, too, of people being really healthy, living long, and having a reduction in, in cardiac issues. And it has to do with not necessarily lower calories. It's just less refined foods. It's really, um, you know, it's the good fats, a lot of fats, a lot of vegetables, nightshades, they're, they're benefit. And, they, and it shows in a population-based level how healthy these are for people. I always thought that was cool. Food is medicine. Yeah. So as an environmental biologist, that's 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 what I went to school for was environmental biology, because at the dispensary, I started seeing the crossover between what we just said. I was like, wait, wait, wait. I think this is just a plant. I think this is just a plant that has natural benefits, just like all the other stuff we just talked about. I think the benefits are very misunderstood. Yeah. So when I enrolled in the environmental biology program, I didn't tell them what plant I was interested in. I was just like, oh, you know, I'll find my organism of choice eventually. And when I Botanicals told Botanicals in general. <laughs> yeah. So like I had to really talk the president of my school, the lawyers, the department chair. I talked everybody into it. And when I explained that I saw cannabis as an agricultural commodity that has both botanical and industrial applications, they were like, dude, we'll support you however you want. Whatever you want to do. That is amazing. So that is literally how you got to the point of researching your dream plant and your dream you know, PhD program, I think you're like, 
it's just I think that's just such a beautiful story how everything came together and now you get to contribute to research and you get to tell people about research and educate people and I, I think that's why I wanted you on the podcast so much is we have a lot of listeners that are younger and they want to get into the industry and they want to make change they want to be healthier even and I think you kind of exemplify how to get there in a few different ways. So I think, you know, thank you for sharing your story. For younger people, what would you, rec- would you recommend to kind of help them or even young people in the industry if they want to get into a research project or manage a dispensary? Like what are, what's some advice that you would give the next generation of people? Yeah, so, you know, this is why I love teaching at the community college because I have students age 21 to 71. Um, And they would ask that question. And at the beginning, I was very confused as to what to tell them. Um, And exactly what you and I talked about. First, start off with what you can relate to, because there's a path for everyone, I believe, in cannabis. But if you're more interested in the environment and sustainability, truthfully, the floral side is not going to provide you that. You may be more interested in hemp and in fiber and in environmental sustainability. If you're more interested in the benefits, right, medicinal, you might be more interested in floral. The reason I say all that to say is where you get your information from has a lot to do with where the opportunities that you're going to go or Mm. like the places you're going to go. So if you get your information from a bad source, where's that going to take you? Okay. if you get your information from a credible source and you can walk into a room and go, excuse me, Mr. CEO, you know, I respectfully disagree, but actually X, Y and Z. And they're like, whoa, uh, yes, that sounds that sounds right. What they just said. It is Come right because facts. it's from this research paper. So as a Marine, like the big thing is our opinions will get us in an unsafe situation. We need the most objective analysis of the situation. And people say, you know, what's the difference between Army, Air Force, Navy and Marines? Marines are the ones who have to go somewhere when they don't have a lot of information. That's the biggest difference. Right. So they say, you know, first first to fight. Just the way that like the military perspective just like shapes the thought. I always I have a, a couple friends that have been in the military. They, they're often kind of hush hush about everything. But sometimes they say stuff like what you do that's really applicable to everything we do and brings a certain level of structure and like trust in a certain process. And I'm like, I need to I need to implement some of this into my own life. <laughs> but it's funny we do. So even this is hilarious, like. I had never heard SOPs before, but in the mm-hmm. Marines, there's SOPs for the way that you wear your boots, the way that they're tied. There's SOPs for the amount of inches that your buttons are from the, like, there's an SOP for everything. So when you see us very structured and very methodical and organized, it's because there's an expectation and it's a very obvious, you either met the expectation or didn't. When there's a lot of opinions, you don't really know what the expectation is. Research is supposed to also follow SOPs and structure and be unbiased, but we know those things can slip in there. And when it comes to funding, even bigger conversation living in the U.S. So, yeah, that's how being a Marine translates so like easily into science, because it's that objectivity. I can't come in here with my opinion because then my research will end up biased. My research will end up being skewed in a way that now lessens my credibility and that doesn't help the Marines and the people in my community. Being objective is what helps people. So yeah, I have to be a robot sometimes, but I really do enjoy what I do. I love working with the plant. Um, I love being a biologist that specializes in cannabis so that I don't just get limited to, oh, you just research cannabis. Um, 
So yeah, that's. Um, I feel like your your background in general um, allows you kind of different opportunities too. Whether it's studying the human body and understanding that aspect, or it's the fiber component, or it's the flower component and cultivating. It's um, and I think in general, the more things that we study that are outside of our expertise just help us in every aspect of of research or even just life because oftentimes we can get siloed, especially especially if we always hang around the same people with the same expertises, we can kind of get siloed into something. And then even if you're studying something that you may seem may seem completely unrelated, like there's no connection between these things, you're going to find a connection and that's going to keep just expanding your world on how everything is intertwined and how, you know, the more people we talk to, the more diversity of people that we talk to, the different books we read, you know, the different places or cultures we go, it's all going to kind of shape our, our perception of everything. The last thing for this podcast is just plug in your social media, telling people where to find you, and um, anything else you wanna you wanna say right now. The the floor is yours. Yeah, so on pretty much all social media, I'm Coach Jackpot. Jackpot is J A C K P O T T. So with two T's, like my last name, Philpot. People always joke like, "You're the guy that has pot in your last name." I remember you, and I'm like, that was not planned at all, um, but it works. So yeah, at Coach Jackpot. Um, I also have a lot of information out there on YouTube, um, a lot of like videos talking about indica versus sativa, but given again, the objective scientists that name these species. And it's really fun when people are able to take a two minute video and go, you just answered the question that people have been ducking for the last five years. And now I'm empowered. Now I can take that forward. So a lot of information that I have is on YouTube, um, but also the conigma.com. Um, C-A-N-N-I-G-M-A. I hope I said that right. Cause yeah, it is. Um, but yeah, we have a free grow, grow guide. It's a hundred pages long. Everybody who's just interested in the science of the plants, not the human consumption, just the plant having its own story. We wrote a hundred page free grow guide on the Conigma.com. Anybody can download it. Um, and I think that that'll help you kind of go down your Alice in, in, uh, in Wonderland rabbit hole and you have to make your own opportunities. That's really what we found um, so far. But next year, I think changes will come. There'll be some pros. There'll be some cons. But I hope some of the pros are new opportunities um, for people that are interested. So. Cool. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I love learning about your story in this industry. So thanks. And uh, hopefully we'll have you on again. I, I think it'd be fun to have the four like Power Rangers from Vegas on. And we could just, you know, sesh and chill. Um, so we'll absolutely. <laughs> yeah, here I want to. So it's funny that you asked me about one of my images before you finish recording. I want to get your uh, your reaction on camera to, to, the, oh, cool. to the images. Um, so here I'm going to share my screen. And this is hilarious. I love seeing people's reactions. All right. You ready? Three, I'm two ready. and one. Floating. <laughs> Oh, is this SEM? Yeah. Oh, so cool. Yeah, so these are these were my images that I published. Wow. It looks like it's braided. That's so insane. That stock. Whoa. Yeah, so because trichomes are so fragile, people had a lot of difficulty imaging them under SEM because it's very rough. Um, 
And I actually and went through and that's scanning electron microscope. So this is like super, super high depth um, microscopy. And these pictures are just showing so much detail of the actual like physical structure of these trichomes. Yeah, so I, I guess the easiest way to explain it, most microscopes use light, right, to help us see things. This actually uses atoms, right? It uses electrons themselves. And it's not actually looking at the surface. It's taking a beam of pure energy, hitting this sample, dismantling the electrons, and then it is, it's just recording what signals it gets from electrons, and it gives us a picture of the exact, it's pretty crazy. It's like Dude, some- Dude, that one looks like a mushroom. That one in the middle, that is so crazy. Yeah. yeah, what I see under the microscope sometimes, I'm like, I've gotten up and just like started rubbing my head, like Dr. Seuss was definitely on some type of, does this not look like Dr. Seuss? Oh my God, this is amazing. Microscopes were my favorite part of my PhD. It was just sitting under microscopes for hours and hours and hours. And so you can even see the non-glandular one right there, right? Right, that's so cool. Yeah. Wow. So those are the images I really like to share with people because then they understand, right? When you look at this picture, the only part of this that has value to the cannabis industry is the glandular head, nothing else. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. I'm so glad you're you're in the the fiber space now. I, you should definitely create a hemp clothing line. Look, I'm ready. You speak it into existence. That's a, you see me working with a lot of athletes, and I'm hoping you know a lot of them are interested in flower, but I'm hoping that they're interested in textiles and increasing awareness on sustainability as well because hemp is great, and we really need to increase our domestic resiliency, and we need more farmers growing hemp and being able to process it. So could a farmer not not to continue not to just keep oh, going, no, you <laughs> if like I grew hemp up here where I live and I mm -hmm. could like would it be easy for me to find someone to like sell this hemp stock to or is that probably not like, not hard like it's kind of everywhere like a bunch of different regions oh no no I meant probably not easy to find oh not easy to find okay so okay. right now I think Cornell did a did a did did a really good paper. Um, for every 20 growers in the state of New York, there's one person who has the ability to process. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, and if you don't process the material on a very specific timeline, the quality can then decrease. It's just sitting there, it's getting moldy, maybe it starts breaking. It's cellulose and lignin at the end of the day. It'll start, it's organic, it'll break down. Right. So yeah, if you're, if you're cultivating, you kind of need to already know who's gonna buy it, when they're gonna buy it, that's the biggest issue with fiber. People love fiber hemp, but the supply chain is terrible. It is almost non-existent because most of our textiles come from other countries. Damn, I'm gonna stop recording.